were there. And uh, I will be making one strong application point this morning at the end of the message. As you go through the text and study it yourself, you could probably come up with many others. And to help you understand the flow of the story of Gideon, uh, Sue Morrison helped me. We put a, a series of scriptures from Judges 6, 7, and 8 in your, in your program. And I'm not going down those sequentially today, but they tell you the story of Gideon. They show you the progression of Gideon. And I would encourage you to uh, follow along with that if you'd like, refer to it today uh, if, it, if it's helpful to you, but uh, keep it with you over the next week and use it in devotions, use it in your study. Get acquainted with the book of Judges and how the Old Testament authors of history, which is also theology, how they wrote and how they communicated messages about God through the telling of history. Well, thank you for letting me, uh, for letting me open up that way. I want to invite you to join with me in prayer and we'll go into the sermon and I will be reading scriptures as we go. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we love you and thank you so much for your mercy and goodness to us in Christ. And we confess that your mercies are new every morning and great is your faithfulness. And I ask you now, Lord, that as you are faithful to us, so pledged and bound are you to us by the blood of your Son, that you would make the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Well, as I mentioned, the story of Gideon is kind of long and complex. And so to simplify our study this morning, I want us to be thinking both this week and next week, actually, about Gideon's life as if you were an observer of what was taking place in Ophrah, not Oprah, Ophrah. Many scenes unfold there. So this is going to be our point of reference. It's not going to be a person in the text, a character in the story. It's not going to be God, looking at this from God's point of view or even the author's point of view, per se, but from the point of view of a place, Ophrah. Ophrah was the home of Gideon's father, Joash, and his family and his clan. And we're not exactly sure where Ophrah was located, but we do know that Ophrah was uh, west of the Jordan River. Uh, it was in the territory of Manasseh. It was in north-central Israel. And it was near the plain of Jezreel. And I'm going to ask for the map of Israel to be put up now. This is a map of Israel. And uh, you can see the, red, see the red oval there. That is the Jezreel Valley. That's the plain of Jezreel. It goes from uh, east to west across Israel. This is, it was in the plain of Jezreel that, uh, that the battle that Deborah and Barak fought against uh, the Moabites was fought. It is in that valley that the great battle of Armageddon will also be fought, according to the book of Revelation. This is an amazing uh, area. Um, it, if you want to know where Ophrah is approximately, it's in the lower, it's, if you look at the oval, look to the right a little bit and, uh, and up a little bit. There's a phrase there, Mount Tabor. I don't think you can see it necessarily where you're seated, but it's, it's sort of near that spot on the right 
of the oval, um, which is uh, marked Endor, but it was close to that. What I want you to know is that when the battle, or when the plain of Jezreel wasn't being used for a battleground, it is the breadbasket of Israel. It is where tremendous amounts of grain and, and uh, fruit are grown. It's a very fruitful plain. It's a very, very fertile plain. Now, we first meet Gideon at Ophrah, and he is, when we meet him, down in a wine press, probably a deep depression in a rock, but he's not mashing grapes. Judges 6, verse 11 says, this is from the perspective of Ophrah, this is what's happening there, that Gideon was beating out wheat in the wine press to hide it from the Midianites. That's where we meet him. So there he is, he's in this depression in the rock, he's crouching, he's pounding wheat loose from their stalks, they can't have the, the, the oxen trampling it out in open because it will be seen, he's doing the work of an ox in this little enclosed space, he's pounding this, the wheat from the stalks so the Midianites can't see that he had wheat. Now you know that can't be a good situation. And if you wonder what was going on, this is what chapter 6, beginning in the first verse, tells us. That the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian for seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel, and because, Midian, uh, uh, and because of Midian, the people of Israel made themselves dens that are in the mountains, and caves, and strongholds, for whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites, the Amalekites, and the people of the east would come up against them, and they would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza. So what we have here is that the, the Midianites and their allies would come sweeping probably from Gilead out of the eastern desert here, sweeping across the Jordan River, go across the Jezreel Valley, pick it clean, so to speak, and then cut down along the coast in the fertile area there all the way to Gaza in the south. All the way to Gaza. It was just this huge sort of crescent assault on Israel. They go as far as Gaza. They leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox, or donkey, which means they removed the tools. They removed the farm equipment that was necessary to even produce crops, these animals. And they come up with their livestock and their tents, and they come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted so that they laid waste the land as they came in, and Israel was brought very low because of Midian, and the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. Now, Israel was built so, brought so low that they couldn't thresh wheat in the wind. They couldn't, they couldn't winnow it so it was carried away. The shaft was carried away. They, they couldn't remain in their homes. They had to hide in caves because every year for seven years when the harvest time came, in swept the Midianites and their allies and they scoured the land clean like a numerous, a numerous swarm of locusts. 
Let's have the next slide if we can. Here's a swarm of locusts. You see the photo of the elephant? You see the swarm of locusts? This was 2013 in Egypt. Now you can imagine if a three-ton or four-ton elephant ate his own weight each day, three tons or four tons of wheat or grain, you can imagine how much that elephant would just ravage the land. Imagine a hundred elephants eating their own body weight every day, just walking across the brain of Jezreel. 300 to 500 tons of grain or grass every day disappearing. Well, the truth is that a swarm of locusts could weigh hundreds of tons, and locusts ate their own body weight in food every day. Let me look at the next picture with you. This is a picture of a, a tree. And uh, it's kind of a beautiful tree. You see the full foliage on that tree. Um, this is before a locust swarm. Let's see the next picture. That's the same tree after a locust swarm. There's nothing living left on the tree. It's been completely scoured clean. And when the scripture says that the Midianites and their allies were like a, a numberless swarm of locusts. This is what they were doing to the grain and to the grasses, the haze. This is what they were doing to the fruit. This is what they were doing to the animals of the land. They were marauders. Unlike others, enemies, they were not, uh, they were not conquering Israel. They were not occupying Israel. They were like an infestation of Israel. They'd show up when the food was there. They'd take it and go. And just as in the aftermath of a hurricane, the people were left homeless. They were left ruined. They were left malnourished. They were left poor. They were left hungry. Now, they began to cry out to God for help. And the Bible says at first, the Lord sent a prophet to speak the truth. And after rehearsing all that God had done to deliver the children of Israel from Egypt onward, the prophet concluded in chapter 6, verse 10, and I said to you, back then, and I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. You've not obeyed my voice. And that was the issue. And the Lord's people were prone to fear other gods, to fear other gods more than the Lord. And when they did, the Lord severely rebuked them. And when he rebuked them, he was not being unfaithful. In fact, he was being entirely faithful to his word. He was keeping his word. He was doing exactly what he had said that he would do. I want you to hold that point. I want you to think about that. And we're actually going to return to that in part Next week, how prone the people of God are to fear other gods more than the Lord. Well, then we're told that after the prophet, an angel of the Lord came to Gideon in the wine press. He was in a tree, uh, crouching under a tree or by a tree near the wine press. He called to Gideon's name. He said to him, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And then he went on to say, go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do I not send you? 
<laughs> Gideon, you could just imagine. He wasn't feeling like a mighty man of power. He said, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the smallest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. You know, everybody calls me junior. And the Lord said to him, but I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man, as if it was just one person. You will strike the Midianites. So here the angel of the Lord is speaking to Gideon. He's assuring Gideon. He's promising Gideon. He's giving to Gideon the only promise that really matters for anybody. And you know what that promise is. That promise is, I will be with you. And when God's people know that God is with them, they live one way. When they do not believe that God is with them, faithful to his promise, they live another way. And when they live that other way, they suffer the consequences of living that way. Well, Gideon wasn't feeling very, very strong about things, and so he asked the Lord if, if he would give him a sign to show that it really was God who was speaking to him. And the Lord was very gracious, and he condescended to Gideon. In verses 9 to 24, he had, he had uh, Gideon prepare a sacrifice of goat and unleavened bread. And then he had Gideon pour the broth in which he cooked the goat over the bread and over the meat. And then the angel of the Lord, the Bible says, reached out the tip of his staff and touched the meat and the bread cakes and fire sprang up from the rock and consumed them both. And Gideon built an altar right there to the Lord at Ophrah and called it the Lord is peace. And the author of Judges says to this day that altar still stands at Ophrah, which belongs to the um, Abiezrites. <laughs> I think that's the way you pronounce it, actually. Abiezrites. But if you were standing there in Ophrah, you could see something else. You can see that that altar that uh, Gideon was building wasn't the only altar at Ophrah. There was an altar right there to Baal also, an altar that Gideon's father had built. And right next to that altar that Gideon's father had built was a wooden shrine pole built for the goddess Asherah, which was the female goddess and the sort of the counterpart to Baal. And that means that that family was a Baal-worshipping family. They're an Asherah worshiping family. They were an idolatrous and a pagan family, though they were in Israel, and it was not uncommon. That night, the Lord told Gideon to tear down the altar to Baal and to cut down the shrine of Asherah. He told Gideon to build his altar to the Lord where Baal had been worshipped and to sacrifice a bull using wood from the Asherah's pole, from Asherah pole, that wood, in order to build the fire. Now you have to understand what this is. The symbol for Baal was a bull. So God says to Gideon, you tear down that altar to Baal, you tear down that wood pole shrine to Asherah, and you take a bull and you slaughter it 
on the altar to the Lord and you burn it up with, a wall, with the wood from that Asherah pole. This is a complete and utter rejection of idolatry and paganism. A complete and utter rejection of it in the midst of his family. Well, Gideon was frightened. He was scared of what his family would do, what the townspeople would do. And so he did these things, we're told, in the secret of night. But the townspeople found out anyway, and they showed up, and they demanded of Joash, Gideon's father, that he turn his son Gideon over to them in order to kill him. And then in quite a turnabout, the old man Joash defends his son by mocking not only the people, but mocking Baal. He says, will you contend with Baal? Or will you people save a god, Baal? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he, Baal, is a god, let him contend for himself. Let him get vengeance, in other words, on Gideon. Because his altar has been broken down. And from that day, Gideon was called Jerubal which means let Baal contend against him because the people were leaving Gideon alone. That's just the beginning of the story. It's an amazing story. We're going to stop there and we're going to continue next week. But what are we to, what are we to take from what we've heard so far? Let's reflect on that for a few moments together, shall we? The situation in Israel was absolutely desperate. It was horrific. The nation was slowly starving to death because of the ruthlessness of the Midianites. And shouldn't in that situation, wouldn't you expect the Lord to raise up a mighty hero? But he doesn't. As a matter of fact, the commentator, Ralph Davis, made the point very succinctly that I want to make to you this morning that what you, what you see with, with Gideon is that in desperate times, and if in desperate times, surely in any time, with, when it comes to the Lord, with the Lord, obedience is essential and heroism is optional. But it's obedience that's essential. It's heroism that's optional. As a matter of fact, heroism is no substitute for obedience. No substitute whatsoever. You know, in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul looks back on major lessons from the Old Testament and episodes and characters in the Old Testament, how God dealt with them and what they were like. And he said in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12, he said, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Let him who thinks he stands be wary, be cautious, lest he fall. And as a preview of next week's sermon, I'll just say that Gideon's fancying himself metamorphosizing in his own mind into a hero will actually be his utter downfall. When I say his utter downfall, I mean his spiritual downfall, which is the worst possible kind of downfall. No matter how rich you may remain, no matter how uh, acclaimed you may be, no matter how famous you may become, it's the, utterly the worst downfall of all because he, he thought he stood. 
I thought he stood on his own. But if you look at what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, the converse of the truth is also the truth. And I'm going to take the converse of the truth, and you see it being applied in this passage as we come to come through the content to this point, which is that let him who knows he cannot stand, let him who knows who cannot stand turn to the Lord, and the Lord will be with him and make him stand. That's the converse. Let him who knows he cannot stand turn to the Lord, and the Lord will hear, and the Lord will be with him, and he will be able to stand. This was Gideon at first. God does not despise his weakness. God does not despise his trembling. God doesn't despise his asking for a sign. Think about this. How does the angel of the Lord first find Gideon? He's crouching in a wine press. How does Gideon identify himself? I'm from the smallest clan of Manasseh, and I'm the junior member of this family. And what does Gideon do after God has assured him of his presence? and speaking with him in a theophany, in a manifestation of his presence called the angel of the Lord. What is he getting? He says, Lord, can you give me a, can you give me a sign to know, to know that this is true? Like, isn't that a sign? And what does the Lord do? He graciously gives Gideon a sign by burning up a soaked sacrifice. And then he goes on to give Gideon other signs, which you'll hear about, some of which are more famous, like the dew-soaked and then the dried fleeces, or the dream of an enemy that he overhears. He'll give him other signs to curb his fear and strengthen his faith. But Gideon is not heroic. He is not a hero. It's only by the Lord's kindness in condescension to him, that Gideon learns to be obedient. And that obedient doesn't prim obedience does not primarily involve the signs. It primarily involves the testing that God put Gideon through. And that's exactly the same, I think, for us as well. Before Gideon can mount up and call Israel to his side and, and take an army and go against the Midianites and their allies and to defeat them all, what must Gideon do? Gideon must remove the paganism from his life. The altar of Baal, you tear that down. You replace it with an altar to me. That shrine pole to Asherah, you chop it up. You use it to burn the sacrifice to me. And for a sacrifice, you take the very symbol of Baal. You take a bull and you sacrifice him. Your paganism has to go. You have to root it out of your life. It's all got to go. It's got to be removed. You cannot have an altar to me and an altar to Baal in your home, not in Ophrah anymore. It's got to go. And that was a trial. That was a test. And though Gideon was afraid and did it at night, he is not criticized for that because what did he do? He 
obeyed the Lord in spite of his fear. He obeyed the Lord. What Jesus taught in the New Testament about money and God, it's true of our idols and God, our paganism and God. We can't serve two masters. We can't serve a master and a mistress and another master. We can't do it. The gods we've bowed down to before that we have served, they have to be cast from our life. And we can't get those gods out of our life unless we remove every form of our devotion to those gods. And even then, we have to beware that our hearts will be seduced back to them. It's like having been a drug addict. Our hearts will be seduced back to those gods. We have to be careful. You know, every one of us in life, we want pretty much the same things. All human beings want the same thing in this earthly life. We want security. Sure we do. We want comfort. Of course we like some comfort. We like some pleasure. We like to enjoy life. Of course we want to do those things. Now, if we're, really, if we're really full of ourselves, then all that gets amped up, of course. And instead of security, we want power. Instead of comfort, we simply want great masses of wealth. Instead of pleasure, we want every kind of self indulgence, but that's just the same basic thing amped up for people who are ego-driven, narcissistic, but we all basically want the same things. And the problem is, before we become Christians, or while we're becoming Christian, or when we are Christian, we can be easily seduced to rely on and to depend on the things the world depends on in order to get what we want, what we desire. There's nothing wrong with security. There's nothing wrong with comfort. There's nothing wrong with pleasure. But what does God say? He says, seek first the kingdom of God and these other things will be added to you as you need them. They will be added to you. But seek first the kingdom of God. So those things that we have relied on, that have consumed our attention, that have, have demanded and we've just... We've simply slavishly sacrificed our lives in order to gain those three things. We have to understand that those are commitments and they have to change. They have to change because we have a new altar in our home. And it is not an altar to wealth building. It is not an altar to pleasure. It's not in the garage. It is not, it is not an altar to power. And it is an altar to Almighty God. So things have to change. And the paganism has to go. Which means anything that was a way of our expressing devotion, those things have really got to be torn down and replaced with Christ. You know, the hardest and the first, and the hardest for many, but always the first challenge for believers, I think, is to live out, their, live out our faith before our family. To speak and to act as the Lord would have us speak and to act in context where speaking and acting as the Lord would have us speak and act are very contrary. Not just not preferred, but may receive a welcome, or I'm sorry, a hostile reaction. 
But that's what it is. We don't do the things the pagans did or do, including in our own family. And we do not adopt their agendas. We do not become bigots. We do not continue as racists. We do not continue with our love of the things that the world loves. We just do not do that. We're not entranced by those conversations. We don't enter into them. We don't think those jokes are funny. We don't live that way. We live better. And we live out our faith in Christ. And this is, I'm not talking about self-righteousness here. I am talking about obeying the Lord. He doesn't need heroes. He needs servants. And servants are those who obey him. And he needs obedience within our families. Needs obedience among our clan. That's the first test. It's easier to do nothing, to be quiet, to, to try to be a, um, you know, blend into the, into the family unseen. It's far easier to do that than to risk you know, disapproval or ire from family members who don't like the fact that you break family traditions or break family ways that violate the unnamed family gods. But when you have those toxins in your family, they are ruinous to the family over generations, and you know exactly what I'm talking about. We have a young woman in our church, and I won't mention her by name because she'd be embarrassed. But a young woman who's a member of our church, as a child, began going to church. Her family did not go to church. They pressured her not to go to church. Eight years old, she began to go to church on her own, walked to church when she could. That's an amazing young woman. And God's hand was on her. But she understood that what God calls for is not heroism. It's simply obedience. And over the course of time, over the course of decades, that walk of obedience has a huge, growing impact on family members. You earn respect. Because when the locusts are in the homes of other members of the family, they're not in your home. And you reach out to them and you love them and they realize you live a different life. And the life you live involves no locust swarms in your home. This is a test for every believer. No matter where you are in family, this is a test for parents in relation to children. Walk it out, that obedience, though they don't want you to. For children in relation to parents, walk it out, though they don't share your commitment. For siblings in relation to one another, brothers and sisters, all through the course of your lives. You know, the Lord will work with you on your fears. And I would say this morning, please, for heaven's sake, do not ask him for a sign when what you really need is wisdom. And if you ask him for wisdom, you may also get a sign with it. But ask him for wisdom. But whatever sign God would ever give you, just like with Gideon, it is nothing compared to the cross of Christ. It's nothing compared to the Son of God dying for our sins. Nothing compared with his rising from the dead. 
It is nothing compared with his promised return. And what more signs do we need of God's greatness, that God is for us, that God is with us? And Jesus' own words after rising from the dead, lo, I am with you, what? Always, even to the end of the age. In the same way that obedience is essential and heroism is optional, I just want to say what you all already know, but I want to agree with you in the same exact way Trials are essential, and it's the signs that are optional. But you stand firm, beginning at home, and you will find that God will use you in great ways to inspire others to join with you, to advance the kingdom of God elsewhere, even to stand on the plains of Jezreel before a far greater enemy. Let's pray together. Our Father, we love you and we thank you for this portion of your word and the story of Gideon. And I would ask you please to apply it to our heart and lives, but there's a lot in this scripture I haven't touched on that you have for your people. And I pray you'd help us be learning, and me too, as I prepare a sermon for next week. But in Jesus' name we pray. Please love this church and love its people. Please help us with our fears and our timidity. But Lord, please let us know our disobediences are unacceptable. And that's how the locusts come. We'll be careful to thank you through Christ. Amen.